0: As a person who teaches mindfulness, as a person who teaches mindfulness, um, I find it interesting that I uh, forgot my glasses. (laughs) I was very attentive of other things. So you all are, I roughly know who you are, but there's sort of an impressionistic like Monet effect. (laughs) So I feel like I'm getting the impression of you more than the clarity and specificity specificity of your facial details, but I can see some of your teeth, so I, I'm assuming some of you are smiling. <laughs> me <the> <clears throat> yeah, just let me know if that's an, like an angry gnashing sort of like, ah, <laughs> uh, <like>, uh, smiles. <laughs> so much of what we practice here. First, uh, how's the volume? Does it sound loud enough in the back? It could go up a little higher. I have it pretty close to my mouth, so maybe if it could go higher up Which there. Number? That's a good question. Number two. two. This is always an interesting moment <clears throat> for an introvert to have their voice meg uh, amplified because my uh, response usually to get quieter. <laughs> and then they're like getting to the screeching level. Um, Oh wait. is it up a little bit? It is. Does that help? Is it better? It, or could it go up higher? Is it good? A little more. A little more <laughs> if we get a little more. Those of you who are listening at home to this recorded talk, uh, hang in there. <laughs> <laughs> I promise you it's gonna change. We won't just do a full volume check the whole time. <laughs> So much of what we teach here is um, breaking the habit of being lost in a time smear of past, present, and future and our minds, going back and forth between them and carrying the burden of all those time frames, the past and the future, and how that puts pressure on the present moment to navigate the continuity of past and future. So a big part of the practice is to uh, soften that habit, let go of that habit and learn to rest right in the flow of the present and gain perspective that really all we have access to is the bubbling moment of the present. And in that bubbling, we can conceive of the future. We can conceive of the past. But the past is really over. And we can relax around it. It's there for remembering. It's there for reflection. But the past really is uh, over. And the future has not yet come. That's the whole thing about the future. (laughs) It's one of the reliefs of the future, is that it's not happening. But in our minds minds we really can paint a picture of the future and then carry the burden of the future as if it's actually happening. But what's truly happening in that moment is we're burdening ourselves with the concepts and uh, imagery of the future. And we may be accurate or not, but still we're burdening the present moment in our reflections of the future, and we can burden the present moment um, with our reflections in the past. So one thing this practice um, uh, gives you is more and more a sense of how to actually see clearly and rest in the flow of the present. And it's not that we never think about the future, or never think about the past, but you start to gain perspective that all thoughts of the future are just thoughts of the future, they're not the actual future. And all thoughts of your past are not your actual past. They're just memories of it. And they're there. they're important, but <clears throat> in the moment they're happening, they're actually just activity of thought. So that's one thing that we're constantly training. And this is training that goes on for your whole life, uh, building this capacity, because When we're not in formal meditation, we often do need to have some sense of the future and some sense of the past, Um, but we want to not be burdened by them. We want to have thoughts that are helpful of the past and the future. But it's helpful to constantly build the strength of perception that your thoughts are not real, or the content of your thoughts are not real about the future or about the past. And a lot of your thoughts about the present are also not totally real. They're just one way of conceiving the information of the present. So that's some of what I'd like to point to and underscore um, what's happening in our practice, what's developing as we spend time here and uh, keep patiently returning our attention to our breath or our body or to sounds when we sit and stand or to our body as we're walking is we're building a capacity not to just get sucked into the gravity of the amazing capacity to think and then to misperceive those thoughts as if they're actual realities we have to be stressed by because in reality they're just thoughts happening in the moment. As you work with thought, that becomes easier and easier, it becomes a more accurate perception. So I'd like to talk about that in a bit. But, I would like to step back for a second and think about time. Think about time that this retreat that we're on plays a role in a much larger context of a spiritual path of waking up and how do we suffer less? How are we less confused? How can we go about life and have it be more meaningful or more rewarding or see it more clearly so that we're making better choices? Uh, choices more closely related to our actual values and not be triggered by insecurities or fears or inaccurate obsessions. And we all know what times of life like that are like and we know what it's like to be caught. We know what it's like to be free. Um, But largely it's out of hand. And so when we come here, we're practicing strengths uh, that we'll use later on after the retreat. So the retreat is very valuable. Every moment on the retreat is valuable because every moment of your life is valuable. But the retreat will end up being however many days it is, and then life flows on. And when life flows on, you'll take these skills with you out, back into your lives. And other parts of your lives are just going to be like parts here. You'll be breathing, you'll be walking, you'll be standing. You'll have emotions that come and go. You'll have thoughts that come and go. And if you can take any of this perspective with you, it really does alleviate a lot of suffering and confusion. And one of those confusions is how we relate to uh, thoughts and having accurate perception on thought. Off of retreat, this particular spiritual path that we're doing does not only about meticulous mindfulness, this sort of very careful attention, um, we still apply the best we can. But off of retreat, other parts of the path are more what we practice, which is service, learning to have insight into uh, ethical behavior, seeing how we might be participating in harm, and how we let go of that, how we heighten our sensitivity to how we might be participating in harm and then see if we can find another way to get our needs met without harming ourselves or others. That's a big part of this path. So mindfulness ends up serving our ethical behavior off of retreat. And just by the way that we're practicing with silence and leaving each other basically alone, being supportive but not interactive, we haven't had to think so much about our ethical behavior. but off of a retreat, when we start speaking and interacting, that's where the, the weight of the practice goes to, is really looking at our actions and our intentions. And you'll have so much more capacity to do that in life, having actually witnessed your mind in motion, which is why these days are so valuable, both in themselves, because there are moments of your life, but gaining perspective uh, is invaluable and that's what retreats can offer you. But it's taking this with you that ends up uh, being really transformational. Not just whatever high you can get on a meditation retreat, which is nice, but they never last. So they can also be disappointing. The highs aren't so important. They're interesting when they happen or if they don't happen. But it's really learning about how your mind works and the motion of your mind and how it gets fooled, and how it wakes up from being uh, um, caught in some type of daydream, that skill and that insight um, will come with you for the rest of your life. And you'll look back at these six days, if this is your first retreat, as a real turning point in understanding your heart and your mind. Um, Even if you don't think you're doing it very well, I can give you a promise on that. You'll understand this retreat a lot better about a month after the fact and what its value was. And measuring it on the retreat is very difficult, and usually inaccurate. So people I know who have done a lot of practice, they stop trying to measure the retreat while it's happening. And they really have faith that it's just simply doing your best as often as possible without being too stressed about it to let go of the thinking mind to see if you can feel one breath at a time, several in a row, without your mind being distracted by thinking. And most people have very humble intentions as they gain faith in the practice, and they just trust it. If you haven't done it before, you don't have the benefit of that particular faith. So you might be measuring, am I doing it right? I can't be doing it right. More was supposed to happen. I heard something about peace. I've never tasted it. There's supposed to be bliss, and that's definitely not my experience. Or, I don't, my mind's just crazy, so I don't think I'm actually built for this practice. That was my interpretation of my first retreat. When I got to the end, I was like, well, that was really interesting. I will never do this again. <laughs> I'm really clear on that, and I'm astounded that anybody does this twice because it was really difficult to sit in the middle of my own mind and all of its habits and patterns, and it had to chew on itself. But over time, doing the practices that we've described here, and a lot of the work that Joanna described last night, of seeing when your mind is go- not going into helpful patterns, and over time learning which patterns are really not helpful, and releasing them, and then which habits of mind are actually really benevolent, both for yourself and for others, and encouraging them and cultivating them. And by degrees, that really does purify your heart and your mind. And then wherever you go, you bring your heart and your mind with you. It's one of your most prized uh, possessions, is the qualities of heart and mind that you have as you go through your days. It's more valuable than anything to have a heart that's wise and kind, because that will come with you everywhere. It's even in your dreams. But Any other possession is transient, but a beautiful heart and mind um, is uh, the greatest value um, that I found. Um, and that's what this tradition speaks of. So, one part of the spiritual path is creating inner sanctuary, purifying the heart and the mind, helping let go of the painful habits. Um, and then another big part of the path is being of service. And again, we're not doing that on this silent retreat so much, being of service to each other or The service we're providing each other is our own practice so that if any of you feel doubt and look around, you see, well, everybody else is doing it, I'm going to keep going. I would give up on walking meditation, but I see somebody else committed to it. So I'm also going to keep going, see where this goes. So that's the service we're offering each other, is silence and not whispering or not breaking silence, and our own dedication to our own practice and then creating a community, that's a great service to others. It's very hard to do this retreat alone. But when the retreat is over, it's not a path of isolation. It's not a path of only inward focus. We do turn around and love the world, serve the world, try to generate well-being for ourselves and others. And the world needs it. The world has always needed it. The world has never, it sometimes feels like there are harder times and that might, you might make an argument that certain periods uh, on the planet were very difficult times. But there, there always are difficult times. It's part, of, it's part of life on this planet. It's not only difficult. There are beautiful realms and beautiful times of life and love and joy, um, much to be celebrated. But you never can make that the full story. Just joy, just ease. Every person experiences heartache, every person experiences physical pain. That just comes along with having an animal body. And then to live in a world where it seems to be heading in the right direction, you have hope in the future, and then it takes some weird turn, and you can lose hope. And feel like, wow, these are really challenging times. I don't know anybody that feels happy and secure in this current political climate. No matter what your political beliefs, if you're far to the right, far to the left, somewhere in the middle, everybody feels anxious right now. And that happens. And that's part of the maturing in relationship to life is you realize you never can finally get it right. That this planet is way too complicated to ever get it right. But you can have a heart that's dynamic, that can respond well, that can recover when it feels lost, or thrown off balance. It knows how to come back into balance. And that's not about clinging to what you want. It's about being able to breathe in accordance with what is happening. And that's finding that inner sanctuary so that you have perspective. And then from that, taking inspired action and seeing what that looks like. So it's a path of developing sanctuary. And it's a path of ever increasing capacity to be of service. I was just visiting a friend in Denmark, and her grandmother is uh, 92. So I went to go visit her grandmother, and a very hard of hearing, but her eyes just glowed. And I was like, that's, that's a really good sign. That's a really good sign of a life well lived at, at 92. With her body in some discomfort, because she was older. But there was such a warm glow in her eyes, especially when she saw my friend, her granddaughter. And we'll watch them look at each other with this, uh, this caring gaze. and I was, I was taking that in. And then my friend asked her if she remembered what it was like to be in Denmark during World War II. And I hadn't done the math, but yeah, she was 92 now, and she was 8 uh, during the German occupation of Denmark. So while she was growing up, uh, another country had invaded her, and the entire realm of Europe was plunged into an incredible war where 80 million people were actively killed by active warfare within uh, five or six years, let alone all the other people that were hurt around the world and died, but not from active fighting, just from famine and other things. That was a very dark time, very dark time, and she lived through it. And that time did not collapse and become permanent, as bad as that time was. But she could talk about it. She had memories of it. And yet, later in her life, her eyes glowed with love and happiness, So even though she had gone through that time. And it reminded me that uh, during that time of occupation, which was really dark political times, the king of Denmark wore a yellow star, which all the Jewish people had to wear in Denmark. to identify themselves. And so that was the beginning of sort of a harsh response, a really uh, horrible, cruel response to Jewish people in Europe. But the King of Denmark wore a yellow star um, in defiance uh, and in, in solidarity with Jewish people as much as he could. Beautiful, a really beautiful, courageous act, if even symbolic, at a time where there was a lot of confusion. So we need to cultivate sanctuary. It's not a given. It's not a given that the human heart figures things out easily. It actually takes some practice and some study and some reflecting. When I was in college, I was doing a lot of uh, environmental uh, protection protesting. And one of the things I did is go down to the Nevada nuclear test site, and we were protesting the underground testing that um, they were doing back, um, and it ended in 1992, but I went there in 89 and 90, 91, went there many times. And I was really impressed that the way to counteract nuclear testing was not to be angry and shout anger at the people who were making bombs. But you had to look at the source of nuclear weapons is human hatred and human fear. That's why we have this destructive power, because the human heart gets that afraid and wants to amass that much power over somebody and thinks that that's the right thing to do. This area of Nevada has had 600 nuclear bombs exploded, uh, mostly underground. So there were two that were exploded over uh, Japan, and that was horrendously destructive. but. Nuclear blasts had gone off in Nevada over 600 times. So I went there trying to help, trying to learn how we could um, at least speak out against the the nuclear violence that was happening there. And I got taught uh, peaceful ways by the Shoshone elders of that land. And there was one Shoshone elder, a man named Corbin, who um, said we only invite you onto our land if you will be nonviolent if you have violence in your heart please don't join our protest because your violence is no different than the violence that are building nuclear weapons so to be there and I guest on his land we actually had to work on our the anger in our own hearts and i saw these two older quaker women get arrested and just like this grandmother was looking at her granddaughter in denmark I saw these two older Quaker women love the guard who arrested them. And they beamed this grandmotherly love on a quality I wish my grandmother had more often. I mean she was a great lady, but that power <laughs> of their loving conviction towards the person who was handcuffing them, it they didn't even know I was watching. And they did it out of their own convictions. But that was a that was a definitive moment in my life to see somebody embody that much courage and that much love, that much direct action and fearlessness, and living from their beautiful convictions, and seeing it in their actions, and their speech, and glowing through their eyes, to a person who was arresting them. So I knew where I wanted my heart to go, but I had no idea how to take my angry, insecure, judgmental heart and mind that would sometimes be good, but often would be insecure. I had no idea how to transform it. And it wasn't until I came to this tradition that I saw there is a gym you can go to. There is a workout. There is something you can do that actually challenges the habits of your heart and mind and cultivates beautiful qualities. It's not a passive thing where you just hope for the best. You actually can train in this. like You can train and become better at anything. And that's what this practice does. very much like the work that Joanna was describing last night recognizing and challenging unskillful states learning how to abandon them when they are up and running learning how to prevent them so they don't live in your heart they don't flourish in your heart and then learning what are beautiful states of heart and mind states of uh, ethical reflection and generosity and your own courage and conviction, your own integrity and recognizing that when it's there, cultivating it Strengthening it, not just having it be a happenstance of something that passed through you. So I, <clears throat> I learned that on the retreat, but I want to bring one more person in as a testament of what's possible for the human heart. And I just heard a story on the radio of a Japanese man, um, Mr. Uh, Shaggyaki Mori. When he was eight, he was, riding, he was walking back home from school when the nuclear bomb went off over Hiroshima. And the blast shockwave was so strong that it blew him off the bridge and he fell into the water of the river that he was crossing by. And other people were blown off the bridge. So it wasn't uh, the heat of the fire, but just the shockwave, and he was a couple of miles away. And he fell into the water and when he came up it was pitch black because the mushroom cloud was so thick that it blocked out the sun. So it was blacker and darker than anything he had seen. And it took several minutes for sunlight to actually come back through the mushroom cloud. And then he saw Hiroshima on fire and destroyed by the shock wave and the fire. And he was eight years old. He walked home. His home was destroyed. He walked around. He went back to his school. He tried to get oriented. And so there are still people alive today who have gone through experiences like that. And that really makes my jaw drop, just to even survive it. But his life took a really interesting turn in that he wanted to actually have an accurate picture of how many people were affected by that bomb blast. And in his research of counting people who had died, he came across information that 12 um, US uh, airmen had been captured somewhere else in Japan and were being held temporarily in Hiroshima before being sent somewhere. And they were, just, they were killed in the Hiroshima blast. And his heart crossed over into global empathy. You think if anybody would harbor a, a righteous grudge, it would be uh, the fact that his whole world had been destroyed by this bomb. But he knew that the family members didn't know that these uh, US servicemen had been killed. And he dedicated his life to learning how they had been captured and contacting their family in the United States and telling their family what had happened to their family members. It took, he had a full-time job, so he did this in his free time. It took him decades to, to do that. Um, and there's a picture of him uh, with uh, President Obama dedicating some uh, peace monument to um, to hopefully never get into a place where we have to, fit, where the people feel like they need to use nuclear weapons again. Now, so moved that uh, that he would put that much time, and his heart could open up through empathy towards the very people who had. Uh, dropped a bomb on his country. And he was just eight years old. So it could, have really, it could have really contracted his heart and mind. But the heart and mind, the beautiful thing about it is that it doesn't have to stay contracted forever. And that it can open up. And beyond opening up back to normal, it can open up to greater heights than it's ever known. And that also happens with this practice. If you're very patient and don't try to make it happen, your heart will open. Uh, when we learn to cultivate um, stillness, when we learn to cultivate intimacy with the world, we just have to be patient and know that it's coming, but not try to make it happen. So one part of our meditation practice is calming our active mind. And you all, after several days of practice, if if this is your first retreat, can see how out of hand the mind is It just won't stay still. Even If you get it to stay still for a little bit, it then revs up again, and it goes back into fantasy. It goes back into thinking. It's a a very strong um, construction of how our minds work, is that they produce a lot of thought. Just like your mouth produces saliva, your brain produces thought. And it can seem endless. Learning to calm that down is one part of the practice. Learning to then be intimate with the present is another part, and that's where mindfulness begins, where we actually can see what's happening moment by moment. Even if you can't stop all your thoughts from happening, you start to wake up and know that you're thinking. You know where your mind wandered to, whereas maybe the first day you were here, it wandered, and you would pop up 20 minutes later, and like, oh my god, I was really checked out, but I had no idea where I was. As the days go on, you actually know where you were. Even if you still wandered for 20 minutes, you were kind of there for the wandering. That allows you to pop thoughts more easily, is that you're a little bit more aware while they're happening. And then, stepping out of your thinking mind is where a lot of transformation can happen, because our thoughts are not where the real gold is. The real beauty of being human is not in our concepts, but it's in the changeability, it's in the cultivation of the underlying heart and mind, more of the emotional realm of our heart and mind. As that gets healed, the thoughts that come out of a healed heart and mind tend to be more benevolent. So you don't actually have to get in there and straighten out your thoughts. You don't have to control them so much. It's a better skill to learn how to pop them like soap bubbles and just realize, I don't have to solve the problems my mind is creating. I just have to let go of the problems my mind is creating. Most of them are really uh, imaginary. You pop them and you come back and you're just here in the present and your mind makes another soap bubble and you pop that. You don't actually have to go into it and wonder if it's worth popping. After a while, you just keep popping them. So the image I had for myself in Burma was that my mind was blowing all these soap bubbles and I was running around chasing them and trying to pop them. Or I would get caught in one and I would be really transfixed by it until it popped on its own. And I was like, oh my god, I was wandering that whole time. Better poppy. So I was better bubble popper. And then I was like, I'm going to make this super easy. I'm just going to put my finger right next to the bubble blower and it's just like, as they were being blown, I was like, oh this is so much better just sitting there. And all I have to do is just be, have super conviction that nothing my mind creates is actually worth thinking.
1: And then a really good bubble is like, oh,
0: not that one. I like that one. And I would go chase it and get lost in it and it would pop. But after a while, it was just tiring to go on another thought train. Even if they were beautiful thought trains, I would have these really creative, uh, euphoric dreams of building these perfect societies on straw bale houses where everybody meditated and it was all organic food and people meditated from when they were young. It's like, oh, it's so beautiful. And then it would pop. I was like, oh, that's not a reality. I was just thinking. And I think, uh-huh. yeah, I'm back to just being me here, breathing in and out. So i gained more convection, even on the beautiful ones, to pop them. And especially on the terrifying ones, pop them. And almost like uh, Joanna said, just stop just stop believing your mind's productions. Because then you can actually feel down into the heart below the thoughts. If you're, trying to, if you're angry with somebody, and you're trying to work out, and you're caught in the thought bubble of the angry mind, you're really transfixed by the story that the anger is generating. If you can pop those thoughts, you have a chance to feel down below them, like, wow, my heart is on fire with resentment. Or there's so much anxiety about this future event. And I'm trying to conjure up thoughts that will protect me, but they're just thoughts. They're not really all that helpful. Popping the thoughts gives you a chance to feel into the heart and the mind producing them. So that's one thing to pop them. Another thing is while they're popping... Get a sense. Is this a stream of angry thoughts? Am I? Is my mind really wallowing in resentment? Is it really wand- wallowing in embarrassed shame about what happened in second grade? There was one time in, when I was a junior in high school. I had to. I was in this Shakespeare class, and uh, it was really hard to read Shakespeare. Um, Some people did it great, and I was like, "Uh, thanks, you really stepped by the bar high. One time, there's this word, peevish, and I stumbled out, pelvish, which in high school, just exploded in laughter. And I, I collapsed in shame in that moment, and I just, I couldn't even keep reading. And every time my mind wanders back to that thought, I still, this is now like, 18, as is like 35 years later, I still have a wince around. Oh, the shame, the shame. <laughs> and then I, <laughs> and then I want to re- I want to retell the story because I'm trying to like correct the content. But if I can actually just pop it, it's like, oh, it's a memory, and I still have a little uh, shame space in my mind, and that's the part I can like. Yeah, we all make mistakes. It's okay. It's okay. In fact. My knowing what shame feels like allows me to be empathetic when you feel shame. So I actually don't want to get rid of all my shame. I just want to have it with perspective so I don't suffer so much. But it's humbling. It's humbling to have made mistakes. It's humbling to watch my heart and mind contract and to know how sensitive a human heart and mind is that we can carry uh, so much burden from the past. You know, Things that we regret you know, happened, or that we want to relive again, um, or that our mind is obsessed with trying to figure out. And our basket gets really heavy with the rocks we're carrying around of all these memories of the past. Rather than it being a library of experiences you could refer to and learn from, actually carry it around like a burden. So when I buy into that thought, it passes by, and I get caught in the little bubble of it. I relive this little shameful moment or if I have some perspective, I pop it and realize I don't want to relive it, but I do have to work with the fact that my heart's got a little shame kink in it uh, from this past. And that's the same shame kink that picks up all my mistakes, and so that, that if I don't heal that one heart pattern, it will always kink whenever I make a mistake. And so I can't try to solve the content of all these experiences and get them right. I'll always have this weakness of having a shame experience if I can't go in and feel the shame, down below the thoughts.
1: So while you're
0: practicing popping all these thoughts and coming back to your breath, coming back to your feet when walking, what you can now do, because we're several days into it, is while these thoughts are popping, or even not even going to the thoughts, you can check in mindfully, what's the quality of my heart and my mind now and know that it will change but as it is right now it's fairly peaceful or it's feeling sleepy or I seem to be replaying the tape of all the things I did wrong or I seem to be playing the tape of all the things I hope to do right in the future I seem to be replaying this fantasy of winning the lottery and how would I spend the money I seem to be You can actually look into not the content of your thought, but the tone, the emotional flavor. And you can put your attention there. That's a much more productive way of healing your heart and mind, cultivating what's beautiful, than trying to get the content of your thoughts right. Because if once we have a loving heart, or we have a forgiving heart, or we have a heart that has perspective, it tends to generate more beautiful content. So you don't have to work so much on squeezing out good content as much as learning to rest, heal, soothe, encourage, warm up the underlying space of heart and mind. And you'll see that as your heart and mind is in a better place, the content of your thinking shifts. So that's one part of gaining perspective is really looking at the habits of your own heart and mind and gaining perspective on them. And whether you were actively doing this or just going through the, uh, the sitting and walking day by day, after a while there's so much intimacy with the present that you will become more aware of what's happening in the present because we don't have so much distraction. For better or worse, we have a lot of intimacy. And you'll go through all your patterns over the course of a long retreat like this, or at least many of your patterns. And you will reveal yourself to yourself. This is what my mind is like when it's fearful. These are the resentments that I can't seem to let go of. These are the things that I'm proud of. These are the things that I hope will come true in the future. You will reveal yourself to yourself by sitting here. And that will give you information. That will give you insight into how you're constructed. The meditation that our Buddhist tradition is known for, is trans- is the word is vipassana, and it gets translated as insight. By strengthening intimacy with the flow of the present, you will gain insight into the habits and patterns you have. Your mind will reveal itself to itself, and that brings insight. You don't have to work on the insights, you don't have to work on figuring things out. You just increase the intimacy and things become more self-evident. Insights are more ripened when they arise on their own than when you're trying to actually figure something out and grapple with something. So just keep practicing and developing intimacy through a greater range of experiences while you're tired, while you're restless, while you're peaceful while your mind is bright and cheerful, while it's feeling a little bit dejected, each one of those is a phase of you to learn to be mindful in that phase of who you are. No phase is permanent. So once there, take, um, take stock of it. Use that time. Don't wait for some other time to be mindful. Learn to be mindful in that version of you. second great insight that comes from this practice can only be found through this practice. And that's how impermanent our experiences actually are. With real intimacy as you go through life, you can see how many variables are changing all the time. So with real intimacy with your body, you can feel how much the temperature is changing, there's a heartbeat, there's pulsing, there's breathing. It feels one way in the morning, one way in the later morning, a different way in the afternoon. So the body is going through changes. Your heart and your mind are going through changes. Those changes cannot be controlled, but you can learn to work with them. But we ourselves are an ever-changing stream of experiences, as is the world around us. What happens with thought, though, is that you map out the world conceptually, and the concept can be stable. The experience of the concept is stable, but the actual thing that it was conceiving is not stable. So an example would be, um, I, I know my parents very well. And there are two ways I know my parents, either directly or through a lot of history and how I conceive of them. So the parents in my mind are greatly simplified than my actual parents.
1: And I know them really
0: well, so I have very complicated models (coughs) of who they are. But even that complicated model is an oversimplification of who they actually are. Conceiving of anything makes it appear more stable, but actually Being intimate with anything, shows you how much it's changing all the time. Something very simple, like this clock. If I conceive of it, it's roughly the same clock that was here when I taught a retreat a month ago. So in my concept, it's the same clock. But if I were very intimate with this clock, that's something I took interest in, I would see that it actually has a little scrape on it. And it didn't have that when it was new. So somewhere, the clock is changing and it's aging. And if I were very intimate with it, I would see that it would change. It also changes temperature throughout the day as the room gets hotter and colder, so does the clock. So if I touched it several times a day, I would say, oh, the the actual clock is not static. The actual clock is ever-changing. But my concept of the clock can be very simple, that it doesn't change. This may sound just like something that's intellectually true, but not all that important. It ends up being very important, because it's one of the ways we are radically misperceiving the life we're actually in. Is Our brains are very good at mapping out the world, and then we live from that map, but we think we're living in actual interaction with the world. When you first meet somebody, you don't know anything about them, and so there's this time period of discovery, but your friends that you know very well, it's very possible you can go asleep in those relationships, both of you, and just live out habits with each other and find it very comfortable. But there's so much more to you and to your friends than you've ever yet discovered. But at some point, we stop stopped discovering our friends. At some point, we stopped discovering ourselves. We've mapped it out well enough. And then we live from those maps because they're simple. But then there's a divide between reality and the maps we're using. And that actually ends up being stressful. It's easy at first to oversimplify. But then that model doesn't map on to how things are actually happening. It's a bit like if I were driving across the Bay Bridge here in San Francisco at a time without traffic. And I took a picture. I was like, ah, oh, this is the best thing. No traffic on the Bay Bridge. And then I, make, I blow it up so it fits perfectly on my window. And then I fold it up and keep it on the side. And every time I don't need it, it's great. I don't need it. It's like, oh, traffic, that sucks. And I just pull out this picture. And it looks great. And there's this great sense of ease. And all of a sudden, the car starts scraping and grinding and hitting things. And, and the wheel won't turn. There's all this distortion. But it looks beautiful. And I pull it back. It's like, oh, reality sucks. Like, this is what I want. But I'm, my car is grinding along with the other cars. And they're all honking. And people are getting out and trying to break, me, break open my windows and get me off the road. But it's like, this is what I want. Yeah, but that's not what you have. (laughs) Even at its best, it's a big breakdown of intimacy to live from your concepts of yourself, the world, of the people close to you. And you don't necessarily know that you're doing it, especially if you've mapped somebody out well enough. And I did this with my dad once. I actually talked him into doing a 12-day meditation retreat which seemed great until we did it. And I was like, score. This is great. I'm going to transform one of my parents. And then he sat next to me on the retreat. I was like, holy shit. Like, oh my god, what if he hates this? What if he goes crazy? What if I go crazy? And like this is really tense for like 12 days and wondering like is he getting it? Is he not getting it? And then a couple of days in, I realized I was obsessing about concepts that my actual father was sitting next to me, but because of the silence, I had no idea what his experience was, but my mind was making all these soap bubbles of what could or couldn't be happening, and I was living in them, popping them, trying to come back to my breath, but I was very uh, transfixed by my mind's stories around him. So I started letting all that go, and I dropped in further, and I thought, I'm sitting to a, next to an absolute stranger, I've, I have not asked him, so much. But he's my father. All I do when we hang out is live in familiarity with him, and I catch up a little bit on what's changed. But mostly we both relax into what's very comfortably familiar. And I realized <clears throat> I there's so much I didn't know about him. Like, what was the color of his first bicycle? I've lived with him, I've known him for fifty years, and I don't even know what color his first bicycle was. I never thought to ask him. And who is who were his close friends when he was five, six, seven at each age? And did anybody ever betray him? Does he have any shame from when he was twelve? Like the amount of questions I could have asked him by now were infinite, but I ran out of questions. How could I run out of questions about someone I care about? So after the retreat, he was pretty shocked because I started asking him all these <laughs> questions, like, <laughs> "When you were 12, who were your friends?" He's like, "God, that's so long ago!" But like, <laughs> was like, "I," and I, I realized there was like an endless amount of mystery, and I could take the part that I had mapped out and felt comfortable. But that was just the beginning of real inquiry into who he was, and then he. he It was his first retreat, so he did not practice with the same vigor I had, but it still had had a very similar impact, where he was much more open to hearing about my actual world than the world that he was comfortable with. So the rest of my family, they haven't gone on a meditation retreat yet. (laughs) Still get them. (laughs) They take interest in my life from when I meet them at the airport, through the car trip home, until we walk in the door. And then they run out of questions. And there's a real heartache around that, because my Dharma friends, they're more curious about life than that. And what my family does is we all go into this comfort mode. We all go into these habits, which I don't find particularly functional, but we've all kind of worked out, this is the roles we play, and this is what we do. And I start asking everybody really complex questions because I know there's more to them than I've ever figured out, and they like it. But they don't turn around and ask anybody else any questions because what they're living in is the comfort of a world already mapped out. And then you get people who fight for the comfort of their map and don't want new information because they've already found a groove that's really comfortable. And so real change threatens the security that people have already fought for in themselves, which is really just conceptual. They've conceived of their world. They don't want new information in because it rocks the boat. So they push back on new information so that they get to have a world that's not confusing to them. But it's not a real world that that they have access to. It's a conceptual world. Every time you pop a thought bubble, Especially when you pop enough of them that you start getting little windows that are not so dominated by thought. You start seeing through your eyes, not taking the visual information and going right up into the conceptual world, but you actually see with fresh eyes. You taste your food with a fresh tongue. If you show up a little bit more, that's why your food is tasting more incredible. That's why the sunlight looks more fantastic is you're actually getting it fresh through your eye, not through your eye and up to your concepts. I know what the blue sky looks like, so same blue sky. No, no, it's not the same blue sky. It's the blue sky of today. So the world you've accessed today is full of mystery. It's full of possibility. It's full of the unknown, which is unnerving, but it also is very liberating in terms of anything is possible when you're not imprisoned by your conceptual mind. Then the conceptual mind gets to come back in as an attendant, not as the dominator, not as something that imprisons you, but the conceptual world keeps track of the past, doesn't become burdensome, but I remember my past, and that's helpful. I remember where I put my keys. That's in the past. It's good that I have the concept of that. It's good that I walk up to somebody and I'm actually remembering them, that I've met them before. And if I have met them before, it's good that I know that. (laughs) Um, It's good that I know which broken down, old, blue uh, 2001 uh, Forester is my Forester. uh, (laughs) And the one that looks just like it when I keep putting the keys in the Trying to open it and the owner comes out and looks paranoid for a moment. It's like, oh yeah, I could have known that if I paid more attention. So, mindfulness, actually, did, uh, one Burmese teacher said, um, mindfulness is like adding salt to your soup. It just brings out every flavor. And salt does that. It's one particular flavor, but for some reason, adding salt heightens every flavor in contrast. So, mindfulness heightens. Um, the the information that you're taking in. You're taking it in fresh. And that's some of the payoff that happens, where you start letting go of the comfort of already mapping out the world and living from that map, which is secure but inaccurate. Letting go of that, opening up through your senses to the actual world. There's a lot more mystery, and at first that's unnerving. But when you begin to... Uh, walk through it, and breathe through it, you realize, I actually have the capacities to take this journey. I can do this journey. It's just an unknown, but it's not so chaotic that it should be all that terrifying. The sun pretty much rises every morning. So, you can take some stock in that the world is not uh, an overwhelming experience of negativity only. At times, that can happen. That's one of the the costs of not living conceptually is that you do feel more of the world, and the world comes with some unpleasant experiences. Luckily, they're all transient. So then you start having the strength, even if it gets unpleasant, I'd rather be awake for the unpleasantness than go asleep for the comfort of the sleep. Because you actually haven't stepped out of the unpleasant world. You've just turned your eyes from it. And you're still being impacted by the unpleasantness. But now you're less conscious of it. So you can not navigate it with clarity. That will also happen. And that happens on a meditation retreat. On a long retreat like this, you will experience physical sensations that are unpleasant. And you'll see that they're not permanent. But you will have to be intimate with them without distracting yourself. The same with emotions and mental states. Difficult emotions and mental states pass through you. Luckily, they're not permanent. But you will feel sadness. You will feel fear. You will feel confusion at times. Those waves will come. And with experience, you get to see they're just waves. So I don't have to worry about this wave being a fundamental reality. I just have to survive the wave of this fear. I have to survive the wave of this anger. That's more doable. It's doing your life in smaller chunks, which is another thing that comes out of understanding the impermanent nature of experience, is that you only have to do the moment you're in. You don't have to do all of it at once. When I was on my first meditation retreat. I, about halfway through, I went in to see a teacher I said, I am terrified of these long sits. And I, I can't do it for a half hour. I just can't. In 45 minutes, I, I walk in with dread. And I used to have these hour-long sits. And I'm like, it's just torture. And she said, don't do it for an hour. Just do it breath by breath. And I got so resentful. I was like, that's bullshit. <laughs> That's such a hippie bullshit statement because I still have to do it for an hour, but like I'm just going to do it breath by breath. And I, was like, I was like, oh, uh, thank you. And I didn't have any other thing to try. So I was like, oh, well, I'll try her advice. And then I'm going to go back and see her. I was like, boy, did that bomb. That was really bad advice. But I had to try it first. So I sat there. I was like, oh, an hour long sit. Well, let's not do it for an hour let's just see if I can be aware of one breath. And it's still an hour, I know, but just a uh, breath. Two or three in a row. Okay, mind wandered. let's just do it for two or three in a row. I'm sure there's 45 minutes left. Like, Let's not think about time. Let's see if I could just be aware of this breath. And it actually made it doable. To do that hour as one whole conceptual hour was crushing. But to do it as a, as a a bunch of little moments to, to just do what I could in that moment, that was actually doable. And so much of my life, so many moments of my life are actually just moments of my life. <laughs> They're just moments. That's all there are happening. It's a moment of experience. And if you can actually guide your attention to what's happening in the moment, most of them are actually survivable. Most of them are navigable. If we can take it In smaller sections, which is another thing that arises kind of naturally out of this practice as we become more oriented to the present, not worrying so much about the whole future or the whole past, but doing what we can in the present. And at times we do have to conceive of the future. That's a skillful thing to do, but it's also a very good skill to be able to put the future down and take a rest from the future. It makes those times when you are thinking about the future much more productive. But if you don't know how to put the future down to rest, if you don't know how to put the past to rest, then you carry this burden uh, of too much time, too much responsibility. That's a place to find sanctuary, momentarily letting go of past and future, and resting in a breath. And then it might become two or three, and that sanctuary and you might have many little sanctuaries over the course of a formal period of practice. And that grows a sense that there's inner well-being, there's inner ease. And from that inner ease, that's where we can step forward into beautiful service. And that's when your eyes will glow as you're being arrested at the nuclear test site, <laughs> if you so choose, or anything you want to do that needs courage. You can actually do it from a beautiful heart. If you make it about just that moment, and you walk into that moment with surrender, with courage of heart, breathing, being embodied, um, and that's a doable way of cultivating a very beautiful way of being alive. So with that said, let's sit together for a moment shake off the bucket of words. Mm -hmm. So with our eyes closed, here is just a very simple moment in time. And we're just humbly sitting still in it. Letting our bodies be at rest. letting our hearts and our minds to be a little more calm, a little more quiet. Just taste the moment of your own sanctuary just by being present. As so you practice through the next day or so, bring your ambitious, your ambitions lower, to see what it's like just to humbly connect to the moment you're in. And then take a breath and do it again. Keep it simple, moment by moment, and welcome yourself into that type of ease. power of walking and then the last sit with some chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com